0: If you would, please turn to Philippians Chapter Four. Philippians Chapter Four Beginning in verse ten. Paul, writing to the Philippian church as he brings concluding thoughts to his letter, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever amen let's pray father i pray for your church this morning lord this church that has so demonstrated its love for you and its desire to follow you lord that you would encourage your church this morning. Encourage them through a reminder as you speak to them that you are the God who supplies all their needs, that you are the God who cares compassionately for them. Father, I pray that each person here this morning would experience a face-to-face encounter with you as your word is taught. And Father, I ask for your help to do that in such a manner that will serve my friends this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. William Whiting Borden was born into affluence in Chicago, Illinois on November 1st, 1887. The third child of William Borden and Mary DeGama Whiting. Borden's family was wealthy and his father prominent in Chicago, making his money in silver mining in Colorado. After his mother converted to Christianity in 1894, she began taking him to Chicago Avenue Church. He soon responded to the gospel preaching of Dr. R.A. Torrey, turned to Christ, and was baptized. From then on, prayer and Bible study became the hallmarks of his life. After graduating from Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania at age 16, Borden traveled to Europe, Africa, and Asia. He then entered Yale University in 1905. Borden graduated from Yale in 1909 and later from Princeton Theological Seminary. He later decided to become a missionary to the Muslims of northern China, but died of cerebral meningitis in Egypt during his training at the age of 25. He is buried in a run-down, dusty American cemetery in Cairo. Borden bequeathed $1 million to the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor's mission, and other Christian ministries. The Borden Hospital in Lanchao, China was named after him. After his death, Borden's Bible was found and given to his parents. In it, they found in one place the words, No Reserve and a date placing the note shortly after he renounced his fortune in favor of missions. At a later point, he had written, No Retreat, dated shortly after his father told him he would never let him work in the family company ever again. Shortly before he died in Egypt, he added the phrase, No Regrets. On his dusty and ward headstone, you can still read today the epitaph of William Whiting Borden, which says this, A man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him. Kindly affectioned with brotherly love, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of the saints, in honor, preferring others. And these profound words, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life apart from faith in Christ. There is no explanation for such a life. Certainly William Borden was worthy of such an epitaph, but he's not the only one. Every person in this room who has been transformed by Jesus Christ, shares a a similar story that apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for the life that we live. Apart Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for this group of people sitting here on a Sunday morning when the world offers so much more and so many places to be. Apart from faith in Christ. That faith that leads us to a commitment and a life that honors God, a, a faith that leads us to proclaim the goodness of God, a faith that leads us to commit a, to a life that rejects the world and obediently follows the truths of Scripture, to a faith that is committed a life that is committed to look out for the interests of others rather than our own self-preservation, to a life that is committed by faith and a willingness to be reviled and persecuted and mocked and scorned for the sake of Christ's name, to a faith that leads us to commit to a life that makes no sense to a watching culture as we give our time and money, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life as the ones that we are called to lead and that we lead. Now, as we continue this morning in our Why series, why we do the things we do for Christ, this morning we're going to look at the question Why give? Why? Give. That's not one of the most exciting passages or messages that most pastors like to give. Because there's always the possibility, there's always the chance that it can be misunderstood. Oh, they're just hawking for more money. Um, I know better. I know this church Giving a message, why give this morning, is easy to this church. It's not a corrective message because you're not giving enough. It's simply a message to help us remember and be reminded of why we give. And I am not concerned for this church. But the question is, why give? What explains a life willing to give Money to a church, to give our time to a church, to a religion, to Christ. And I trust and I believe this passage in Philippians will answer this question. Now, the context is important. The Philippian church has a wonderful storied history. Acts 16 recounts Paul's Macedonian vision where Paul was heading in one direction and the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said go into Macedonia where he does and you see now he is in Philippi and there is the conversion of Lydia there is Paul and Silas in prison there is the earthquake that frees Paul and Silas from prison then there is the Philippian jailer and his entire family coming to faith in Christ that is just Acts 16 alone it is a church though that has suffered much It is a church that has been experiencing not only much persecution, but severe poverty as well. But it never wavered. The Philippian church never wavered in its love for Paul and its desire to help Paul proclaim the gospel. And at the writing of Philippians in in this section, Paul is in a Roman prison. That's where Paul is writing from. The Philippian church being very dear to Paul has a special place in his heart because they've been faithful partners with him in the gospel from the first day until now. In Philippians 1, Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The first day, he's talking about the day of their conversion. From the moment that they were born again, they partnered with him in the gospel. They stood with him in the gospel because they had a heart for him. The hallmark of their partnership was their commitment to advance the gospel. And as we read in chapter 1 in Philippians, through prayer, through their defense, they defended the gospel. And as we read here in chapter 4, through their continual sacrificial giving to Paul, that the gospel would go forward. So why give? My proposition is this. Why give? Because our giving is a reflection of the spiritual condition of our heart. 15%, 15% of all of Jesus' words are about money. There are twice as many verses on money than there are on faith and prayer in Scripture. And there are more verses on money than heaven and hell combined. Money reveals much about who we are. It reveals how we live and who and what we love. Money is a significant indication of what is going on in our spiritual life. And Paul's letter to these dear brothers and sisters is an instructive reminder of what should be at the heart of our giving and what are the effects of our giving and God's response to our giving. And this passage helps explain why we give. And so three points this morning, and they are the heart of giving, the rewards of our giving, and God's response to our giving. The first one, The heart of our giving. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for here's the point. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The heart of our giving is contentment. It is contentment. The Philippian church in verse 10 has supplied Paul's need for a long time. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived. You've returned your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me but had no opportunity. There was a time where the Philippian church was unable to continue providing for Paul. Paul was in the... the, in Macedonia, where you have Thessalonica, you have Corinth, and you have the, the church in Philippi. And the church in Corinth was, was actually told by Paul, you may not give me any money because of the immoral lifestyle that you've been living, and because they were accusing Paul of preaching the gospel for sordid gain. So Paul said, I don't want your money. And the church in Thessalonica was suffering so greatly under, under their impoverished and, per, and, and persecution that Paul just w- withheld receiving any money for them. And he even stopped receiving money from the church in Philippi simply because he didn't want the church in Thessalonica, which was a wonderful church, to be embarrassed. And Paul was a tent maker in Thessalonica at that time and earning his own way. But now, as he is in prison, and if you know anything about time in a Roman prison, Roman prisoners, not like today in a prison where meals are provided, nothing is provided except basically a stone floor, a stone bed. And whatever supplies a Roman prisoner received were from those on the outside. And so when Paul speaks of reviving their concern, he's speaking of this church who knows he's in prison and they are saying, hey, we are here to care for you. And so that's why Epaphroditus is sent to Paul in prison and he is able to provide for Paul the gift that the Philippians sent. And if you remember, Epaphroditus was the one who, started the Colossian church, and when he goes to Paul in this Roman prison, informs him of what is happening in the Colossian church, which we studied over the last number of months, and Paul then writes the letter to the Colossian church. All of this is happening at the same time. And in the midst of this, Philippi, the Philippian church, which itself is very much suffering. You remember the Philippian church from 2 Corinthians In chapter 8, when Paul talks about generosity and giving, verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That's what Paul's speaking of here. That's this reviving... So finally, in verse 11, the, the Philippians have a chance to help Paul. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul had learned how to be content, Paul had experienced poverty himself. Paul had experienced what it was like to to know suffering. Now understand, Paul Paul had grown up as a Roman citizen. He'd grown up in the town, the city of Tarsus, which in those days to be be a citizen of the city of Tarsus meant that you were well off that you were well provided for. And, and Paul being a, a Pharisee, Paul being a teacher of the law, Paul grew up in an affluent family. And so when Paul says here in verse, in verse 12, or actually verse 11, I have I, learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul, Paul has something to compare it to. Paul had learned to be content in his circumstances to the point that one of the things that he initially did with the Philippian offering when it was first offered to him, is he sent it to Jerusalem. He sent it to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was suffering in greater poverty and greater persecution. The churches there were experiencing that. And so Paul takes what is given to him and sends it off to the Jerusalem church about six months ago I was talking to one man in this church who had a coworker that he was praying for a co-worker who was suffering and he was just telling me I I just didn't have any money to give I had some hospital bills that I had to pay and so he just said I just I just prayed Lord just show me how I can give to this man and a week later a check for $600 shows up from an overpaid hospital bill. And so this man gives that money because he saw that as God's provision to serve somebody else. Now, I know how I would have thought at that moment. I would have thought 600, 300 to him and 300 to me. That's how I would have thought. And not this man, he just thought, "No, God answered my prayer. And it was an expression of his contentment of where God had him financially at that time. He demonstrated the very thing that Paul demonstrated a heart of contentment. And so he was able to give this $600 to this gentleman, this coworker who was in need. God provided and he gave it all away, which was Paul's heart. It was remarkable what Paul was willing to do. And he's commending the Philippians for their remarkable sacrifice as well. In verse 14, he says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It was kind of you to share my trouble. They shared in his trouble. They too had learned contentment even in the severest trial. This Macedonian church where they were in extreme poverty gave to Paul and gave generously to Paul because they had learned to be content. Verse 12, Paul, like I said, he knows suffering. In verse 13, he answers the reason why he is easily so content. Verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned the secret. And in verse 13, he tells us what that is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me me. It is Christ who himself shows himself strong when we are weak. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is Christ who gives us strength when we feel we cannot go on. It is Christ who soothes our souls when we feel like there's nothing left in the tank. It is Christ we cling to. It is Christ who Paul looked to and said, it is through him who strengthens me. It is in Christ alone that I have learned the secret of being content. No circumstance in our lives should ever be greater than that truth. Listen, no circumstance could ever arise which was too much for Paul's God to handle. No circumstance. Paul learned contentment because he knew it was through Christ, his Savior. He rested and he was assured that in every circumstance, every circumstance that God had planned for him, Christ would be there. And strength would abound to him. Alex Mateer says this, Paul is a man of unshakable contentment. Unshakable contentment, because he, he knows he knows the secret. The circumstances can never touch him again. Circumstances aren't what determine the course of his life, how he feels, how he should live. Now, those who don't learn this secret of Christ in them will never learn to be content. The Israelites in Exodus 17, 7, complained about God, complained to God at the waters of Meribah because the waters had not yet been provided. The rock had not yet given water. And so in their complaining, this is what they say. Is the Lord among us or not? Where is he? Is he among us or not? Not. They thought if God were really with us, this would not be happening. Oh, how often do we feel that and do not learn to be content in any and all circumstances, in plenty and in need, in abundance and in want? Do we cry out, is the Lord in my life or not? If he was really with me, if he was really good, this would not be happening. That was the Israelites' struggle. And in Psalm eighty-one seven, we find out that it was God who was testing them. It says that God tested the Israelites at the waters of Meribah. Rather than us testing God and his goodness, God was testing them. It's all in our perspective about who God is and how he provides for us. It's all in our perspective. There's a a little old Christian lady living next door to an atheist. Every morning the lady comes out onto her front porch and shouts, praise the Lord. The atheist yells back, there is no God. She does this every morning with the same result. As time goes on, the lady runs into financial difficulties and has some trouble buying food. She goes out onto the porch and asks God for help with the groceries and then says, praise the Lord. The next morning she goes out on the porch and there's groceries she's asked for. And of course, she says, praise the Lord. The atheist jumps out from behind the bush and says, ha, I bought those groceries. There is no God. The lady looks at him and smiles. She shouts, praise the Lord. Not only did you provide for me, Lord, you made Satan pay for the groceries. (laughs) If we do not learn and lean into the secret of contentment, let me tell you where you will lean. You'll lean towards covetousness. The opposite of contentment is covetousness. If I'm not content in the circumstances I'm in, whether it's financial or the circumstances of life, I'm going to covet something that God has decided at this time not to provide. I'm going to demand from God what he has not offered. And we will grow in our hearts coveted. Coveting things that God has yet to say it's time. And most often it is money and material things that we can covet. But if we do not lean into the secret of contentment, we will lean towards covetousness. Because we, we do not want to be men and women who demand what we want, demand what God has not given Believing that God is not good. Because then we will just become even more self-absorbed. And we will withhold from others. Listen, the heart of our giving is a heart of contentment in Christ. That He has given us all that we need. All that we need. Not all that we want. All that we need. And we are not the arbiters ultimately of what we need god is god is god is the one who determines what we need so the first point is the heart of content the heart of giving is being content secondly the rewards of our giving Paul recounts all the blessings that resulted in the Philippians' generosity. Look at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Listen, the first, the first reward, the effect of their giving was this. They shared in Paul's trouble. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. They, they shared in Paul's trouble. They, they helped bear Paul's burden. They they carried Paul with them in prayer and in financial support, in practical means. They, They shared. That was the wonderful effect of their giving. That's the effect of our giving. Why we give, that we can bear the burdens of those in our own church and those outside our church. It's why we have a benevolence fund. It's why we have an adoption fund. It's why we support ministries not only around the world, but in our own, in our own community. It's, it's our opportunity to share in the troubles with others. Secondly, we're able to partner in sharing the gospel. Look at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, meaning that the moment you were converted... The moment, that verse, remember chapter, chapter one, their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And you, you, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. They're, they partnered in sharing the gospel, they, their partnership was more than giving money. This word partnership is in the Greek is the same exact word that we get the word fellowship for koinonia when paul speaks of partnership here koinonia he's speaking of your giving created fellowship among us fellowship, our, our longing to share our life in Christ together. You shared your life in Christ with me through your giving. You partnered with me. These men and women long to share their life in Christ with Paul. They long to partner, to fellowship, to have koinonia with Paul. And so they give. They express their fellowship by giving to him even in the midst of their extreme poverty. These folks, their lives had been changed. Money was no longer a god. Money was no longer what enslaved them. Money was just a tool to advance the gospel so that lives would be changed in the same way their lives had been changed. Verse 17, they were rewarded. I love what Paul says here. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, your gift, Philippians. Thank you for sending this money. I'm not seeking this from you. I'm grateful for it. I'm receiving it. I'm not seeking it from you. But here's what I am seeking. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's, that's what I seek. In fact, here's, here's what Paul means by that. And I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't have these words in mind. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, they were laying up treasures for themselves in heaven. They were being rewarded, Paul says. God is crediting this to your account. You are laying up treasures in heaven. Not that I seek the gift. I seek the treasure that increases to your account in heaven. That is a wonderful reward for giving. The effect of their giving is a heavenly reward. And as much as they wanted to help him, Paul desired to serve them this is paul's remarkable way of saying thank you for the gift god is going to bless you and then oh i paul goes on to encourage them about why give and what it means look at verse 18 i've received full payment and more look your gift has been so generous your giving has been So abundant, and especially in your extreme poverty. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then he describes these gifts. Listen, brothers and sisters, these gifts, the the gifts that you are giving to me, Paul says. And let me say this, the gifts that you give on Sunday morning are described the same way. And not just Sunday morning. The gift you give of your life, of your time, of your service, of your energy. The sacrifices you make to care for one another in this church. Paul describes it this way. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul is well cared for and their generosity more than covered his need. But more importantly to Paul, the effect the Philippians gift had upon the Lord was his greatest thought in this passage. Brothers and sisters, he says to them, what you have given is a fragrant offering pleasing to God. Ralph Martin says it this way. He says, The language used to describe their gift as a fragrant offering is taken from the Old Testament and is a reminder to us that all sincere Christian service, which entails sacrificial and self-denying costs, not only promotes the cause of Christ and strengthens the hand of God's servant, but it is an act of worship in which God takes pleasure. Everything that you give of your time, your energy, but your money, it is is an act of worship in which God takes pleasure. And thirdly, God's response to our giving. And I think these are some of the most encouraging words in Scripture. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In response to all that they've done, in response to their partnership, in response to their fellowship, in response to their sharing his troubles, in response to their giving out of their extreme poverty, in response to their act of worship, Paul is saying, look, God loves you and cares for you, and my God will supply all your needs, every need of yours, according to his riches. How rich is God? There are infinite, unfathomable riches. The riches of his grace and mercy, the riches of his salvation, the riches of our inheritance in Christ. He will supply all that we need through Christ. And I love how he connects this, that his supply to us is mediated through the very one who has given us the most important thing we've ever needed in life. And that is salvation. That his death on the cross, his willingness to die for our sins, his resurrection from the dead being acceptable as a sacrifice to God. That is what we needed most and has been supplied in Christ. And everything thereafter, which God liberally gives. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. John 10.10 That is the heart of God and He will supply all our needs. F.F. Bruce says, They may rest assured, says Paul, that what they have given to God will be amply repaid by him from the limitless resources of his riches. It's because God delights in his children. Paul's confidence is that in Christ, every need in our lives will be met by God. That he will reward our sacrificial generosity. And he will reward us as those who are called to be cheerful givers. As those who are called to give generously. To give because we have been given too. Again, Ralph Martin said this, on reading this, verse 19, what Paul is holding out to his Philippian friends is a reassurance of the faithfulness of God who, as he has supplied the material need of his servant, is able to supply their needs too. Brothers and sisters, whatever your deficiency may be, God will supply a remedy to it whatever it may be, not just a financial remedy, but a remedy to meet every circumstance you're in. This is true because Paul, again, it's connected to Christ. It's, it's not just go to the store and get something. It's God, the creator of the universe, supplying. Finally, F.F. F. Bruce says this, Paul cannot even think of the divine riches now without linking them with Christ Jesus. He is the mediator through whom all God's blessings are communicated to men and women. Oh, why give? Why give? Because the heart of giving, first of all, is contentment. There's rewards and effects to our giving. And because... God likes to respond to our giving. So, application, why give? Well, on the practical side, it's it keeps us moving forward as a local church body. But more importantly, and this is actually more important, we give because it's an expression of our contentment and trust in God. That's why we give. Even in our need, we are expressing our contentment and our trust in God. So, well, We also give because it's a pathway to joy. Again, Second Corinthians 8, Paul writes, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. It's a pathway to joy. Thirdly, it's a protection against covetousness and a pathway to contentment. Fourth, it helps grow our character. Is there, verse 2 Corinthians 9, 7, really giving helps reveal our character. It, it It helps reveal our spiritual condition. It grows our character. Listen, in Exodus, when they were building the temple, the people, the Israelites, had to be restrained from giving. Restrained. It had enough. Stop giving. Now, you haven't heard that from me. (laughs) I'll let you know when. (laughs) Why give? It's a demonstration of true, practical Christian fellowship. Paul has said it here. Partnership, koinonia, fellowship. Why give? It advances the gospel. Why give? It pleases God. It pleases God. Now, the end of this is really the highlight of the verse. The very last verse in this section is the highlight of the verse, because through all of this, through Paul's exaltation of God through Paul's excitement about the Philippians giving and and his his honoring them for their giving and him seeing how God has supplied his need and their need at the end of this all Paul wants to do is what is called doxology he wants to praise God. Because at the, at the heart of all of this, at the heart of our ability to give is God. At the heart of our receiving is God. At the heart of our, our being supplied is God. Everything is centered around the Lord. And Paul ends with this doxology in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why give? Verse 20. That God would be glorified forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy of giving, for the privilege of being able to give, because you've transformed us. You have changed us. We're no longer miserly. We're no longer greedy. We're no longer coveting, because you have freed us from the slavery of those sins. And now, Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to continue leaning into contentment that we might glorify your name by, as, our, as we partner in the gospel, as we fellowship with one another, as we supply the needs to serve others, Lord, as we move to bring honor to your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.